Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, a podcast from the Yale Sustainable Food Program. We cover people and ideas making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. Hopefully, our series has revealed that ideas and food often come from many different and sometimes unexpected places. This week, we're looking indoors, somewhere a lot of research these days is done about food, but maybe doesn't jump to mind immediately. I'm thinking of the laboratory, and for today's episode, specifically lab-grown meat. Also known as cultured meat, lab-grown meat works by growing cells from an animal in something as small as a petri dish or larger, like a bioreactor. The technology has excited scientists, entrepreneurs, and the media for years now, promising a sort of futuristic solution to the ills of industrial meat production. We're still ways away from a commercial product, but I've heard the topic come up enough that it was worth exploring a different angle. Ben Wargaft is a public scholar who recently published Meat Planet, a book that looks deeply at cultured meat's emergence and what it says about us in terms of our interests and values as people. Ben also happened to be our last Chewing the Fat guest for the spring. We weren't able to gather, but we're lucky to have been able to hear from him over Zoom. We chat about his book, but also topics like what COVID-19 means for meat production and why people seem to be so enamored with tech approaches to food. For fans of science fiction, and especially the show Black Mirror, I asked Ben to pitch an episode about cultured meat as a bonus question. That comes near the credits. Enjoy the show. Maybe how I want to start off today is asking you about your relationship to the word public scholar, which you've written about. What do you see in terms of the meaning of that particular vocation? And why might it be more important today than ever? That's a very generous question, um, in part because you've avoided a term that always annoys me. You may even know that it annoys me, and the term is public intellectual. <laughs> and and um, it's a term that I, I basically wrote. My first monograph in intellectual history is called a book called Thinking in Public. is an argument for the complexity of publicness and for the complexity of the relationship between philosophy and publicness. Whereas in, in, in North America and Great Britain, the term public intellectual is often taken to have a pretty stable meaning. We say public intellectual and we mean a smart, educated person, sometimes a scholar, sometimes a scientist, who speaks with some moral authority about things that are not in their original professional purview. And an example of this would be um, much of the career of Noam Chomsky, the linguist, who is not famous for his linguistics, first and foremost. He's famous for his political commentary. Um, and the fact that I, I usually share Chomsky's politics on many issues doesn't lead me to like having a kind of a mediascape in which certain public intellectual voices take up a lot of the room. I tend to like public conversations about ideas, but I tend to not like the cultural dynamics, if that isn't too pretentious a turn of phrase, for the way certain people contribute to them. And I like the term public scholar in some ways because it's 
one of the things I aspire to, I guess. I mean, I, I don't really actually, <laughs> this will sound horrible, but I, 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 I don't care about being in the public light that much. It has certain career advantages, but it doesn't interest me as a posture. I'm interested in having conversations about ideas with people, and I'm interested in certain conversations that I think are important, like the conversation about meat, being smarter conversations, better informed conversations. And I'm interested in those kinds of conversations not being solely in the provinces of academic life. So um, I had written Thinking in Public, and I was trying to think about what my next project would be, and I was looking for a way of unifying a long-standing interest in food writing with this long-standing interest in the history of philosophy. And I was thinking, what kind of topic could convene readers around a set of questions? And luckily enough, that was the same time that lab-grown meat was uh, coming into the media, as it were, pun, pun always intended. So that's sort of, that, that's a long-winded way of, of gesturing at how Meat Planet came to be as a book project. Setting aside cultured meat for now, something that I've noticed in both my conversations with you and the book is that the way that you strengthen this public-facing conversation that you're hoping to build is very much sharing about your own personal story. And what I'm interested in, as we've talked a little bit more about, is you mentioned being an omnivore, but I'd love to hear a few more moments, perhaps special experiences in your life that capture your feelings or emotions towards meat. <laughs> I think I have to answer this question by association. Um, it's the only really honest way to answer it. So there are a few experiences that are coming to mind. And one of them is the way as I was researching the book and interviewing a lot of people who are often vegetarian and vegan themselves, and often they have substantial moral commitments to the abolition of animal agriculture. And then I would cook meat and I would hold, you know, a salmon steak in my hand. And it would feel kind of gross. <laughs> It would just feel gross because it is a piece of muscle tissue that had propelled an animal through the water. You know, that, that, that's what it's for. It's not for my pleasure. It's not for my consumption. Um, and this kind of weird, it's almost like a kind of, the, the foreness in that sentence is almost like this weird Aristotelian knee-jerk reaction. Like animals have a foreness, a quality. They have their own telos. Their telos isn't my pleasure. I'm not really an Aristotelian, but I play one on TV. Another experience is that of eating <laughs> teriyaki chicken wings as a kid in Hawaii. And I would eat teriyaki chicken wings. And the teriyaki chicken wings were very delicious, I think because they were sweet and I was a little kid. And um, there are many forms of sweet meat, like the very red lacquer painted boneless barbecue spare ribs. That was delicious for me as a child. That was really lovely. So between these experiences of something that is delicious and kind of meat-like, but often delicious for reasons that are secondary to, the, to its status as meat, and then the experience of disgust trying to handle the salmon steak that I'm going to grill. I think that probably what I get from that 
random association off the top of my head is that when I would think about meat, it was often because I was experiencing meat in ways that I knew were kind of distant from the creature. And there was that sense of distance from the creature in the experience of eating it. Like you could have carved that boneless spare rib out of a lab-grown slab of material and achieved the same shape. It wasn't animal muscle tissue that advertised its relationship with the animal body very closely. But then there's a much more positive association, which I write about briefly in the book, very briefly, which is that I flew to Nashville to visit friends who had moved there, and they picked me up at the airport, and they just said, okay, um, we're going to drive. And I said, where are we going? And they said, we're not going to tell you. And they drove, I think we made it. Did we make it to Kentucky? Is that possible? I'm not going to remember this right. We end up at a farm. We're in the car for hours, and we end up in the, at a farm. And I'm told that I have been brought to a pig picking. And the pig picking is essentially a southern U.S. luau that involves pigs that have been buried with hot rocks underground for 8 to 12 hours. And um, they've had their insides scooped out and replaced with apples, which have baked inside them. And large men wearing overalls use leather slings to haul hundreds of pounds of pig body out of these pits in the earth. I think there were three of them. And they put them up on literal butcher block tables, these big wooden tables that are standing in the middle of a field. And I'm there, and there may be a hundred people there. And um, now we're talking, reflecting on this in the time of pandemic. This is like an almost paradisical vision of how I would like to share time and space with other human beings. We're gathering around these animal bodies, and we're literally taking meat off of their bodies with our fingers. And it is effing delicious. This pig picking stands out to me as the most transformative experience of eating meat as a very positive animal respecting practice. Those pigs fed a lot of people for a lot of days. And that's something that I really value. What I'm hearing is that this eating of meat is important for you, not because of the eating itself, despite the fact that it was delicious. Um, it's not important because of a particular tradition, necessarily, but of the fact that it says something about being human, about relating to one another, about being in community. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like a kind of a Chez Panisse caricature when I start to talk about the positive versions of meat, because I like, okay, common salady and community and respect for the life of the animal slain and respect for the farmers involved in its raising and... Um, you know, the sort of the idea of a virtuous moral circle embodied in an agricultural act. Um, but I do have those values. I really do. Um, I, 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 I don't think they come from a bad place. Um, but I do think they need to be interrogated. Um, I do think that we romanticize certain models of small-scale meat consumption um, in ways that can be bad, uh, particularly because they can become fig leaves for less good versions of meat consumption. You don't want a situation in which the existence of certain virtuous meat practices opens the door for a lot of non-virtuous ones. So perhaps on that note, let's start with an interrogation of what has been purported to be a potentially virtuous 
practice of providing meat. Meat Planet looks at a number of different questions, but it's less so about will this technology succeed, when it will be coming out. And you phrase it perfectly when you ask the quote-unquote essential question of what makes cultured meat imaginable, and I love the word imaginable. Can you share with us more about this particular framing of this question and what it's about? When I say what makes cultured meat imaginable, I mean that um, I'm resting on the idea here that technologies require certain circumstances to come into view. It's hard to imagine a chef's knife without certain levels of metallurgy, right? And cultured meat is imaginable in part because we have cheap meat on the back of industrial meat production. We have fast food meat. We have the meat form of the hamburger and the meat form of the hot dog or sausage. And all of those things uh, make it desirable to imagine producing meat by other means. We also have the technology of tissue culture, which I believe was first developed in the lab by Ross Harrison in 1907. He was an embryologist who was looking at the development of, I think, amphibian embryos and trying to keep cells alive to study in the lab. And this becomes a medical research technology for the most part, but it's also used to do things like produce vaccines. And the idea usually in tissue culture that's used for production is that we're going to try to produce a byproduct of cellular metabolism that will be very valuable for medical reasons. And not, and this is stuff I talk about in the book, not, we're not trying to produce cells because we want to consume them. And the idea that you could do tissue cultures, I often use tissue and cell culture interchangeably, and no tissue culture scientist has talked to me yet. Uh, the goal has not been to grow cells to use as a mass of cells, but the idea that you could do that is relatively old. It trailed the development of tissue culture only by a couple of decades. You have people in the 30s through the 50s starting to project visions of a future of growing animal parts rather than whole animals. The famous quotation from Winston Churchill from 1932, people reproduce it as though he meant it seriously, which I don't think he did. I think it was part of a, of a, of a tract that he published for political purposes more than anything else in order to make a statement of optimism about the future. You have then a food context and a technology context for the imaginability of cultured meat. But that is in and of itself inadequate. You also have a kind of specific nexus of economic forces and ideological forces in the very late 20th and early 21st century. And to be very casual about this, you could call this like the TED Talk formation of forces and the idea that um, there might be an alliance between capital and positive social change, which at a certain moment, um, and this is probably a good 10 years ago now, around 2010, that's what much of the TED Talk tech conference circuit seemed to present to the world the view that there was a virtuous mingling of intellect and resources in the world, and that social change could be managed by capitalist means. And in fact, it could be managed better by capitalist means than it had been managed by activist means and by political organizing. So one of the storylines behind what makes cultured meat imaginable for a lot of the nonprofit people involved in it 
is that they have been activists, sometimes for many decades, working for organizations like Mercy for Animals, like PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And many of them are disappointed by the fruits of long decades of animal production activism, and they're looking for a faster means to achieve their goals. And they think that technology in the market is that means. So this belief in technology in the market as a means to social change ends up being a really powerful ingredient in what makes cultured meat imaginable. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm your host, Erwin Lee. If you're enjoying this episode so far, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Your support empowers and inspires us to tell more stories and reach more people like you. In other words, you're helping us Yes. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show. Ben, this makes me think about another one of your book's chapters. You title it Promise, and seem to suggest that the promise of cultured meat is inseparable from a broader hope in technological progress. Is that correct? Oh, it absolutely is. I don't, I don't see how you could believe in the promise of this technology without having some subtending beliefs about technology as a force in our lives um, and as something that has a tendency to get better, which is a very odd thing that people tend to believe about technology. Um, I, I mean, it's understandable. In the class that you and I were just in, we talked a little bit about Moore's Law, which isn't really a law, but rather the belief that there's a predictable pattern of improvement in chip processing power over time. And I think it's a doubling of power per 18 months. And there are communities of techno-utopians who are obsessed with questions about like what happens when Moore's Law runs out, when chips stop getting faster? Well, can we shift to a different substrate of processing? It's almost as though there's some desire to make Moore's Law into a real law of nature, as if we could write one. And it's so obviously willful. The belief that the ways in which computing power improves over time might extrapolate to other domains, including the messier and slower domain of biotechnology, which cultured meat is it's a kind of biotechnology. It's a curious belief. It's a very curious belief. And in the book, I borrow from the science fiction writer William Gibson, who's totally an influence on the book that's obvious everywhere. I, I borrow the terms from his um, early cyberpunk novel, um, Neuromancer, of cyberspace, the world, which we now think is the internet, and then meat space, the physical world, which Gibson's hackers look down on. The idea is that you, you end up looking down on the physical and wanting to live more in the digital. And I, I play with those terms in the book in order to argue that the success of many digital technologies that scale very well and very fast have created false expectations for biotechnologies to scale very well and very fast. And for those that may be less familiar with cultured meat, can you unpack some of those chief skepticisms that you are alluding to? I read sort of two levels, one being more around the scientific and technical challenges of cultured meat, and the other being more of an ideological or philosophical opposition to the forces that are driving the technology. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to be very clear and say that I am a skeptical person, but I'm not a cultured meat skeptic. That is, I'm not somebody who's taken up the position 
that he should doubt this in public in order to produce a practical or intellectual effect. That's really not my game. I'm actually a supporter of cultured meat research. I, in a reference to a TV show that marks me generationally, the 1990s program, The X-Files, I want to believe in cultured meat. I'm just not sure that I can. And there are objections at the level of the possibility, and there are objections at the level of philosophy and ideology that we can talk about. And I suppose that one way of summing up my attitude is that I'm really worried that the startup and venture capital model of advancing the project of cultured meat asks it to move at too fast a pace for the technology itself, and that it would be more, quote unquote, natural to develop cultured meat in an academic context funded by research grants. And that's because I think that what I see from researchers is that this is a slower burning technology. It isn't something that develops at the pace that would yield the kind of return on investment that VCs need to see. And I'll get into a more full-throated answer to your question, though, from there. Um, the reason why it's so slow is partly that it is simply biological research and that's slower, but also that there have been several technical roadblocks that are harder to clear than researchers had wanted them to be. And one of them is to find a kind of growth media to feed the cells in a bioreactor. And there is a wonderful growth media that you could use, part of which comes from fetal bovine serum. <laughs> and the desire to create a vegan version of this growth media, that means that you can't use FBS or fetal bovine serum. It means you have to find an alternative that has the growth factors in it to encourage cell growth at the right rate. And um, that's been very hard to do. The other problem is the dimensionality of tissue. Now, we have seen uh, hamburgers, sausages, we've seen mostly, we've seen some other forms of meat, but for the most part, the small amount of cultured meat that's been made at the test phase consists of layers of cells that can be taken and made into a kind of a slurry and shaped into something. They're not the kind of structural muscle that you see in a steak, for example. And to achieve the kinds of layered striations of muscle with some fat seen in steaks and other kinds of tissue that we might want to consume as meat, you would need a bioreactor that can work really three-dimensionally, that can grow cells in complex arrangements relative to each other using some kind of internal scaffolding. This is the issue. It needs to have a vasculature that can convey nutrients to all those cells at great thicknesses. And um, the thickness at which mammalian cells can live away from nutrients is rather small. So those are technical problems. Then to zoom out again and look at these sort of ideological and philosophical objections, I certainly don't have a philosophical objection to growing meat in a lab, <laughs> um, morally speaking. There are interesting questions that you might ask about what doing so says about animals and people. But those are interesting questions rather than philosophical problems. There are problems, though, with the way we frame the question that cultured meat answers. And this is getting back to some things you were saying earlier about what meat is like and our sheer presumptions about the centrality of meat in our lives are worthy of questioning. I mean, we eat as a species a historically unprecedented amount of it. 
I don't think it would come as a shock to any listener that many of us have reservations about this. Though <laughs> from the level of human health, the level of animal health, and even maybe at the level of culinary practice, is it good for our food ways to load them down with so much meat? I'm not sure it is. And that, that would actually be a very interesting conversation to have with a bunch of chefs. You do end up carrying conversations with a whole cast of characters and organizations throughout the book's research. And so as much as you're following an idea or a technology throughout your book's research, it's also very much connecting with people. What are some of the more surprising elements of these connections? <laughs> That's such a fun question. So thank you. Um, so I'm at a, a kind of a party hosted by one of the organizations um, that is a nonprofit devoted to education and promotion of research into cellular agriculture, um, which is the term they use. They call cellular agriculture is their term for replacing animal agriculture with cell uh, cultured um, surrogates. And um, a guy who knows I'm a historian comes up to me and he says, so you're a historian. I say, yeah, I'm a historian. And he says, do you think that history can help us to predict the future? And I said, no, I don't. I don't think that history can help us to predict the future. I don't think that past precedent has predictive power. And he says, so what good are you to us? And that was probably the most surprising moment of human non-connection um, in the course of my research. <laughs> um, uh, but, but you know, it, it's funny. So I said I'm a historian. Um, I did a lot of ethnography for this project. I became an ethnographer to do this project. I read a lot of anthropology, um, although I don't call myself an anthropologist. Um, I am the kid of an anthropologist. Um, I'm also the kid of a historian. So there's a way in which I, I brought my parents' uh, backgrounds to bear on each other in this project. But um, ethnography means being open to surprise. And sometimes these moments that can feel kind of bad and, you know, at the time, like being told that um, you're no good to somebody, um, uh, can be very revealing. And in, in that case, it revealed the ethos of the speaker in question. Uh, so, like, okay, well, you know, if you think that the point of life, the universe and everything is to be part of a particular movement and to push a particular goal forward. And um, you think that there's a utility principle governing the things that we do at a deep level, you go, you know, uh, but I myself, I was not down with his bad self. I was extremely unhappy uh, with the instrumentalist ethos that I saw. And it wasn't just that moment. That was, moment was just the, mo the funniest example that it, it was a world of people who seemed to be living their lives like an impact assessment exercise. And some people in the world of cultured meat research were just stellar human beings who are wonderful to hang out with. Mark Post definitely fit that description. There were people like Isha Dattar and Aaron Kim of New Harvest, uh, who I admired, I admire so much, in part because um, you know, their impulse towards honesty in the conversation was so diametrically opposed to some of the other impulses that I saw, but included people who um, really needed to believe in an official future of cultured meat, and they couldn't stand to have open critical conversations about what it meant. 
You meet a certain kind of person and you can tell that they need to stay on message. But their need to stay on message at all times is almost like a warning sign about them. I'm curious today if you were able to go back and add another chapter into Me Planet, what that would be about. Oh, I have a fantasy. I don't think this will happen, but uh, the fantasy is that I'll get to write the expanded edition of Meat Planet, Return to the Meat Planet, and it will have six extra chapters in it. The chapters would have to do with what actually has been happening in the world of cultured meat since 2018, <laughs> really, when the book's research shuts off. Um, it would be more about the startup world, but it would also have a chapter about the this wonderful group of young researchers who are fellows of New Harvest, and many of them work at a laboratory in t at Tufts in Medford. And um, they um, do a lot of really concrete experiments that I think are really fascinating that I would have liked to have written about for the book. There was also, there's an assessment being done by an independent consultant who was hired to essentially do a kind of a feasibility study of cultured meat. And I would really love to write about his feasibility study because it is a technical piece of work that I do not have the intellectual training to fully understand. And I would love to talk with him about how you write a feasibility study for a technology that doesn't exist yet. I thought for a little while, I thought I was going to have to write a chapter called The Lawsuit because I thought I was going to get sued. Um, the reason I wanted to write these additional chapters is very dorky, and it is because... Um, so Meat Planet has this odd form. It has 18 short chapters. Um, it has 18 chapters because of the form of the Homeric epic. So Homeric epics, the Odyssey and the Iliad, have 24 books. And I am a great lover of the epics, especially the Odyssey. I'm, I was inspired by the Odyssey to write a 18-chapter book and present cultured meat as a story only three-quarters of the way told, because I feel like there's always more story, because the point is that we haven't seen the end of it. It's a story about the future. So I thought that if I ever got the chance to write six more chapters and kind of complete the story. It would be an interesting thing to attempt. We started off our conversation today with just me asking you how you're holding up in the middle of this pandemic and where you are in the world. And now I want to ask you, what connections are you seeing between this pandemic and your broader understanding of food systems? Okay, so um, look, I'm full of fear for what's going to happen to the restaurant world as a result of this. I worry about a world in which we have more big chains and fewer small operators who are free to work with smaller vendors. Um, the more big chains you have, the more sort of Cisco dependency the restaurant world has the more you have people eating all the same things, even if different restaurants configure them differently. So I think that we have to do everything we can in the midst of this pandemic to support smaller, more local producers and cookers, cooks of all things. Um, what all of this reveals, I hope it reveals fragility. I know many intelligent people who believe that because a restaurant is big and popular and famous that it's stable. I think that we can now see that that's not the case. I think that this is making restaurants of many decades look 
kind of ephemeral. I don't think it would be terrible if um, <laughs> the price of meat skyrocketed <laughs> as a result of supply chain disruption. I'm not in any way a supply chain expert, so I don't want to be seen as making predictions. Um, but we have problems at producers like Smithfield in which having to change production or even shut production down due to COVID-19 infection among their workforce leads to disruptions up and down the supply chain. We might see disruptions like that rippling out into the future by quite a bit. I try to very rarely wear anything like a pundit hat, but I do like to talk about the value of human skills and human practices as opposed to technologies. And I think it's great that people are chatting on Twitter about sourdough starters. I think that it's wonderful that people are talking about cooking because they have to do so much more of it right now. And I think it would be interesting to live in a world in which people get as excited about skill sharing as they did about the promissory capital of, an, of a potential new technology. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. This episode was produced by Amy Zhang, Alexa Stanger, Lynn Wynn, Sasha Samina, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Recording support by Ryan McAvoy of the Yelp Broadcast Studio. Jingles by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. With episode music by Sasha Samina. Program support by Jacqueline Mano, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. Ben alluded a lot to sci-fi when we talked. And I was excited about how he saw technology as a way of understanding more about ourselves. The show Black Mirror has a similar approach to its writing. And so I asked Ben what he might pitch as a TV episode about cultured meat. Here's his answer. I think the big question would be, do you want lab-grown meat to be real in this episode? Or do you want it to be a figment of people's imagination that everybody is organizing themselves around? And it would be really, really interesting to imagine a meal in which nobody's quite sure where the meat came from. And uh, you can't tell if the host is having one over on the guests by saying that it's lab grown, but it's actually not. Um, but I think that often in science fiction, the depiction of food is really kind of marginal. It has this very highly, it's like a gesture. Gibson refers, I think, to vat grown meat at one point in one of his novels. There are the famous chicky knobs from the Margaret Atwood novel. But uh, part of that gesture is that like food, food doesn't matter very much in the future. Where it's part of the, the scenery, but it doesn't affect our lives that much. There's a current science fiction series that I love by the writer Ada Palmer called the Terra Ignota books. And she presupposes a future 400 years away in which everybody eats lab-grown meat and nobody eats actual animals. And one of the characters does, and he grosses out everybody around him. It's like his shtick as a scary guy, as a scary villain type character, is to have like a rabbit haunch or a deer leg on his person that he munches um, and the juices dribble down his chin. And everybody's disgusted by the proximity of his meat to actual bone. And it would be interesting to think about an, an episode of a TV show in which actual meat is gross because everybody's used to that meat. And there we go. Netflix, call up Ben Wargaft. He has an idea for you. <laughs>
This episode marks the end of Season 2 for Chewing the Fat. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, thank you for listening. Stay safe out there.